Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 37. We're going to start at verse 14. Isaiah 37, 14 through 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms and all of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Uh, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, just wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from this hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. You guys can have a seat. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a joy to be with you. Um, for those of you that are just joining us, I just want to say a quick word about the catechism. Uh, this is new for us, too. This is something that we've only been doing now for a couple of weeks. And I just want to tell you real quickly the heart behind this. You know, for 500 years, and even longer than that, the church has been learning about God through catechism. And what catechism is, is it's basically a question and answer format. And the idea behind it is that we memorize these things. And I know today we're, we're, um, we're sort of against, in some ways, rote memorization, right? I mean, you guys, maybe you feel that in, in your hearts. You go, I don't want to just memorize something because my heart isn't necessarily behind it. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that as we spend time meditating on these things and on these truths, our hearts are going to sort of follow. That's the idea behind it, that we would know these things, that, we would, um, that we, would, we would spend time memorizing them. We've done it as a family this week, by the way. We, uh, we have a, uh, a non-digital version. We have a little booklet version of it that sits uh, right at our dinner table, and we've been working on it with our kids. Uh, and then we know that as we, uh, as we have a first through fifth class, they are going to be going through the same question that week that we are memorizing together here. So it's a chance for families to get together and to really just start to teach our kids and teach ourselves um, just what it is that God's Word has to say. These are some of the basics of theology. And there's 52 questions. So we will go through the entirety of those 52 questions over the next year, and we'll come back and we'll hit it again. Um, the, the, next, the next year. And so I'm really uh, enjoying doing it with our family, and I encourage you to do the same. Uh, it's not just to come up here and, uh, and sort of read off something in front of you. The idea is we've been working on it throughout the week. It's something we've been doing together, and this is sort of the final maybe test, if you will, to try to read it without looking at the screen um, when, when, you're, when you're doing it. So that being said, uh, we've already got our Bibles open to Isaiah uh, chapter, you, you guys are open to chapter 37. We'll, we're actually going to start in chapter 36, but I had to choose somewhere uh, for Sarah to read for us. So we will be in 36, and I'd like to, um, I'd like to pray before we start. Lord God, I, I, I confess, I love, <laughs> I love this passage of Scripture. 
And what it, what it does to me is it makes me um, nervous to be faithful to your word here. Uh, God, I, I want so desperately to capture what it is that you are teaching us through these two chapters that we're about to cover. So God, would you please come by the power of your spirit? Lord, you know my, you know my frame, you know my frailty, you know my, um, you know my cough <laughs> that I'm about to have. You know, Lord, so much, and yet what, what, what I give to you, Lord, is I just say, you take this, and you take this service, and Lord, you speak through your word, because we want to hear from you this afternoon. So come in your glory, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. So here's where we have been. If you were here with us last week, it was kind of a weird week. Why? Because we covered 24 chapters of the book of Isaiah in one sermon. Um, and we didn't really, what we did is we covered the themes of those 24 chapters, and we did it really by focusing on one particular chapter that had all of those themes in it. So we, over this last, um, these last 24 chapters, from chapter 13 to chapter 35, here has been the idea that's been going on. God had used nations around Israel to humble Israel. God's people, Israel, had been far from him. They had rejected him, and they had rebelled against him. And, and as often is the case in the Old Testament, God's, um, God's, in a sense, his wrath or his judgment upon Israel and those people at that time was to send nations that were outside of Israel to come and attack them. But here was the cycle that we have seen. When those nations come to attack, they immediately think that they have done this by their own great hand. That they're, they're sort of, they've got it all together, they've got it going on, they're this incredibly powerful nation. And so inevitably what happens among those nations is that God then humbles them. And God decrees upon them because they have not trusted in him any more than his people have. God decrees upon them destruction. So it was a heavy text because we were seeing sort of nation by nation by nation, God going through and saying, I've used you as a tool to humble my people, but you have not turned to me. And as a result, I am going to judge you. Now, what we saw last week as well was that out of those nations, there were some who would come. We saw this in the chapter that we were together on. Out of those nations, some who would come and humble themselves before the Lord. And so what we saw was this distinction between the, the Gentile nations that were arrogant and prideful, and we might even say the whole of the nation, the government, often the kings and the rulers, and then some within those nations that would humble themselves and come to the Lord. And we saw that it was humility which is actually at the heart of faith. That, that it's, it's the willingness to come before God and be willing to just, just open our hearts to him and share who we really are. That is at the heart of us truly coming to the Lord. And it's no different today than it was then. That if we would humble ourselves and come, the Lord, as it says, he lifts the head of the humble. But the arrogant and prideful, he will tear down. That's what we get from Scripture. We understand that from Old and New Testament. 
So what is happening this week then is we're seeing now an example, one particular story where God is going to do essentially just this. And I'm going to take us back into history a little bit and understand what's, been, what's going on with this particular nation that we're going to see. But we are going to see a nation humbled and, and to the core. A prideful, arrogant nation judged by God. And you know what we're going to see? We're going to see God's people, Israel, identified through their king, Hezekiah. We're going to see him humble himself in a truly amazing way, in a moment of desperation. So let's jump in together. First, I want to give us some historical context for what's going on in chapters 36 and 37. So let's get some background to understand what's happening here in our passage. So we have, um, we, we have been following sort of Isaiah's ministry throughout the book of Isaiah so far, but in this particular instance, we have zoomed far ahead in Isaiah's life. So Isaiah at this point in, 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 uh, in the story is an old man. And I want to take you back to one of the earlier days of when Isaiah, when his ministry was sort of brand new. I want to take you back in your mind. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 7. And let's talk about what was happening in Isaiah chapter 7. In, in Isaiah 7, Isaiah was talking to another king who was reigning in Israel at that time, a, a king in Judah, and his name was Ahaz. Now, let me just kind of spell this out for you. Ahaz, not a very good king. Hezekiah, we're going to find a better king than Ahaz was. Okay? So here is Isaiah talking to Ahaz. And Ahaz, for those of you that are you know, keeping score at home about the, the dates, this is about 730 B.C. Okay? So for those of you that are interested, it's in 730 B.C. And Isaiah is going to King Ahaz. And remember, if you remember and you were with us, Ahaz was shaking in fear because there were two nations that were about to come against him to fight against him in war. And that was the northern kingdom of Israel. Some of you remember that like America during the Civil War, there was a north and a south at one point in Israel's history. And like in the Civil War, they hated each other. And so here is Ahaz in the south, the king of Judah in the south, and he is trembling because there are two kings coming against him in battle. And one of them is the king of the north, so the king of, of, over Israel in the north, and then the king of, hear it now, Syria. No ah in front of that. Syria. Okay? Syria and the king of the north were about to come against him in battle, and he is trembling, but Isaiah says to him what? Don't, don't worry. Don't tremble. Because these two kings that you are worried about are not going to be able to come against you. In fact, this is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, by the way. This is a, this is a passage we covered a couple of weeks ago. In fact, there's going to be a child that's going to be born. And, and before this, and this child is not necessarily going to be anybody special, but I'm going to tell you who he is. And before he gets old enough to even know the difference between good and bad, you're not even going to have to worry about them anymore. And, and so he, he sets before the king this prophecy that God is going to take care of the southern kingdom of Judah. And sure enough, within a few years, just as Isaiah said it would be, a new power emerged on the world scene. And that new power was named 
Assyria. I know this is confusing. That new power was named Assyria. And Assyria grew to be a power that nobody in the world up to that point had seen. And I'm going to throw out a name that you don't need to remember, but I'm going to throw out this name just because I kind of like to say it. Under the king Tiglath-Pileser III, I love that, it just rolls off the tongue. Tiglath-Pileser III all of a sudden comes together and gathers the Assyrian army, and he begins to take out all of the people around Assyria, all of the people groups and all of the nations around them, and he begins to emerge really what becomes known as an empire. The world had not seen an empire yet, but Assyria was really the first one to rise onto the scene. And just as the king in the south, Ahaz, is trembling over these two little itty-bitty kings, Assyria is gaining dominance all over the world. And it is just a matter of time before Assyria invades not just Syria, their neighbors, but the northern kingdom of Israel. And they completely invade and wipe them out. Now, what I mean by that is take all the people, pick them up, and move them to a completely different location. We read about it in 2 Kings. You can see up on the screen if you want to. 2 Kings 18, 11 through 12. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in, these are different regions of the city, Hala and on the Habor and the river Gozen and in the cities of the Medes. Because, here's what the, here's what the author of Kings tells us, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So that's what Kings tells us about this particular moment in history. When Assyria came in and basically captured the northern kingdom and completely took it away, leaving the southern kingdom just by itself and momentarily taking care of all of Ahaz's problems. But what they will find is that this sort of solution is not really a very long-term solution. Why? Because at some point they want to come after the southern kingdom as well. So, and I have a picture I just want you to see, just to see how bad these Assyrians really were. This picture is, is not that bad. There are other ones that are actually are very grotesque, but I want you to see that this is Assyrians taking away people who they have conquered their territory. Now, here was the practice. And by the way, this is called cultural genocide by historians. Cultural genocide. It, it doesn't mean that they killed the people. They don't kill every, they don't kill all of the people. But what they do is they take an entire culture and remove them and then scatter them to places where there are other dominant cultures going on. And what happens? You intermarry and you change. You slowly but surely lose your culture. And that's what Assyria did. They said, we want the Israelites wiped away. Therefore, we're going to pick them up and move them. And we're going to just simply scatter them, force them to move all over the known world at the time. So this fulfilled what Isaiah told the king, that the king didn't have to worry about the northern kingdom, that they would be taken care of. And Isaiah also, back in chapter 8, said something else to the king, and I want us to read it. I want you to see what he says. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. 
Here's what Isaiah says to the king. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, capital R, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. Remember, that's the southern kingdom. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So notice there the detail about going just up to the neck and then, like a flood, eventually dissipating. So the prophecy states that the river, by the way, that's the Euphrates River. Whenever you see the river, that's what that means, the Euphrates River, where Assyria, by the way, that's where their capital is. It talks about the river, and it will destroy the northern kingdom, and it'll also sweep into Judah, and it'll also reach up to the neck of Judah, but it will pass on and it will not destroy Judah. That's what he tells us. So the point is that Assyria would rise, take out the northern kingdom, almost destroy the southern kingdom, and then would be done. Now we come to our text, which, by the way, is 20 years later. So 20 years after that happened, now here we are in our text in Isaiah chapter 36. Assyria continues to be dominant during our time. They are very sure of themselves. And the king of Judah in the south is not Ahaz anymore, but he's a guy named Hezekiah. Okay? So the king in the south is Hezekiah, and Isaiah is now an old man, still operating as the prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. So he came up against all of them, took them. What we find out is in context is it means all of them except for the capital city, which is Jerusalem. So he's come up against all of the cities of Judah. He's taken them. He's so far Jerusalem as the only one that has not yet fallen. And here comes the king of Assyria into Judah. Hezekiah is now in his capital city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah has seen now each of his cities fall to the Assyrians. And the king of Assyria now sends his Rabshakeh. Now a Rabshakeh is a, it's an officer of the armies. And, and the Rabshakeh seems to be able to speak now for the king of Assyria as he comes to Hezekiah the king and stands at the wall and he's sort of the, he's sort of the, the messenger, if you will, to now bring the message from the king of Assyria, now to Israel. And he's basically going to say, surrender, it's over for you. So let's look now. What I want us to see is that there are five chapters in what we're about to cover. Five chapters, and here they are, in case you're interested in taking notes. Isaiah 36, 4 to 22 is this, Assyria's first challenge to the God of the universe. Because remember, friends, they are not challenging Israel. They are challenging Israel's God. Isaiah 36, 4 to 22 is Assyria's first challenge to the God of the universe. Number two, chapter two is Hezekiah's initial dependence and Isaiah's assurance. Okay, so there's a response that happens there. 
But then look at number three, chapter three, Isaiah 37, eight through 13, Assyria's second challenge to the God of the universe. And look at number four, Hezekiah's complete dependence and prayer. And then chapter five, the God of the universe accepts a serious challenge. Let's look at these sections in order quickly together. Let's look at the first chapter, Assyria's first challenge to the God of the universe. Have you ever taken on something or someone and realized at some point when you took them on that you are completely outmatched. Like they are in a different league in whatever you're trying to compete with them on, and yet you've got yourself into this and you go, uh-oh. When I was 18, I thought I was a good soccer player. I was on a club team. Our club team was, was challenging for the state championship of California. I say that not to my pride, you're gonna see why in a second, okay? But our club team was challenging. We were in a tournament for the state championship of the state of California. And though I wasn't good enough on that team to play the forward position, which is what I love to do, the goal scorer, right? My job was to be the defender that shut down the other team's goal scorer. So in other words, their best player, I was, that was my job. I'm just supposed to be on that guy the whole time, shutting him down, not letting him do what he wants to do. And, and up until that point in the tournament, we had been working our way through the tournament. I had been reasonably successful at this task. Just by being, just getting in the guy's face and being near him and, and constantly elbowing him. And I was mean back then. It was, it, was, it was just part of my, it came out of me when I played soccer. But I would just be constantly with this guy, never letting him free to do anything on the field. And as long as I did that, our team seemed to be doing well, not just because of me. But that was a part of the, of the equation of our team working its way through the tournament. And we got to the finals of the California State Championship for the club, for club soccer. And we played against the San Bernardino Blast. They're like right here, okay? We played against that team and I will never forget, they had a, a forward on their team that played for the United States national team. And, and, and in my arrogance, I heard that and I went, ah, how good could he be? And who do you think got marked up against this guy? my job. That was my job. So here I am, we're three minutes into the game, and this guy takes off from me so fast. It was like this, I have no idea where the guy went. He made one move, and he was gone. And he got so much separation from me that his own team kicked him the ball, and he scored a goal three minutes in. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I have no ability to hang with this guy. And then the team started figuring out that I was the weak link. I was the weak link. So what they figured is every time they got the ball, they would pick their head up and just look for where that guy was because they knew I couldn't catch him. So he ended up just break away, break away, break away. He just had so much going on, and my other team would have to save the day constantly, and eventually he scores three goals, and we lose the game. And let me be real honest with you. 
That was the moment where I decided soccer wasn't for me. <laughs> I mean it. I was thinking about college for soccer, and I realized college is going to be filled with all of these guys. I realized that I had bit off more than I could chew. I realized that I was in a league. I was not in this guy's league. Friends, that story doesn't even come close to comparing with what is going to happen right now. Because you are going to hear the king of Assyria challenge the God of the universe in battle. Let's see what happens. The greatest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point, probably the original world empire. And they think they have reason to be prideful. They really do. They've, they've had a lot of success up to this point in their military endeavors. So the Rabshakeh shows up at the walls of Jerusalem and he stands at the city gates and he tries to convince the people of Jerusalem to give up and open the gates. That's what he's wanting to do. And here is what he says. We pick up with his speech in Isaiah 36, verses 18 to 20. Here is what the Rabshakeh, the one speaking for the king of Assyria, says. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, has that worked for any of the other nations? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Oh, my goodness. So the king of Assyria reasons like this. This is his reasoning. Ready? I've conquered all these other lands, and none of their gods have been able to stop me. Why should this one be any different? And his statements are basically this. Those gods were nothing. Therefore, this god, is nothing. And the king of Assyria doesn't know it yet, but he mocked the true and living God, and he will not survive it. It's chapter 2. Hezekiah's initial dependence and Isaiah's assurance. Now imagine you're standing on the wall and you're Hezekiah listening to this. He's seen the other nations fall before Assyria. He has seen his own cities now fall before Assyria. And here is now Assyria on his doorstep, taunting him and mocking his God. Isaiah 37 now, verse 1. Let's look at it together. As soon as Hezekiah, King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Okay? This is a good start for a worshiper of God. Tearing the clothes and wearing sackcloth, by the way, is a picture of humility. It's saying, I am humbled to the dust before God. So he does those things. And then it says in verse 4, pick up with me in verse 4. 
He says to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, and listen to this carefully, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, notice in the first section of that verse, in verse 4, Hezekiah calls he says that, Isaiah, maybe your God will deal with this. At this point in Hezekiah, in his heart, this is, this is Isaiah's God. Like, hey, Isaiah, you're the prophet. Do, do something about this. Pray. Do what you're supposed to do. Talk to God. Are you supposed to talk to God on our behalf? So there's a form of humbling that goes on here, but then there's a lot of leaning on Isaiah. There's a lot of, Isaiah, this is your God. You talk to him. You tell him what you, what you want him to do. He says, Isaiah, you pray. You pray to your God. Maybe God will hear those taunts. Maybe he'll respond. So I don't know about you, but I get the sense that this is still sort of a muted and a weak response from Hezekiah. Maybe I'm reading that into the text. It would be fair to say maybe I am. But I'm hearing not a complete dependence, but sort of a, ooh, I better humble myself a little bit. I better call upon the guy that I know handles this kind of thing, Isaiah. And up until this point, Hezekiah had been trusting in who? In Egypt to save him and his people. He had been going down to Egypt saying, can you give us horses? Can you give us chariots? We need to protect ourselves, which is always, by the way, in the Bible. Trusting in Egypt was always a picture of trusting in the flesh, always. You remember when Moses led the people out of Egypt? What did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt because that's where things were maybe a little more stable than wandering through the wilderness. The, the desire to go back to Egypt is a desire to go to the ways of the world to think that that's the answer for our problems. And so here's Hezekiah up until this point trusting in Egypt now seems to be shaking a little bit that, of that off of him and says, Isaiah, you go deal with this problem now. Oh, but it gets worse. Let's look at chapter 3. Assyria's second challenge to the God of the universe. Now, at this point, the Rabshakeh had left to go help Assyria fight against another one of Judah's cities. But the king of Assyria wasn't done taunting Hezekiah, and he wasn't done mocking Hezekiah's God. He tells his messengers to go back to Hezekiah with the following message. Here's what he says, very direct now, by the way. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? So here it comes now a second time. And now, what is Hezekiah's response to this final mockery and taunt? Let's look at it in Isaiah 37, 14 together. One of my favorite verses of the Bible right here. 
Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. What is Hezekiah's response? He goes to the place where he normally meets with God. He goes to that place, which was one place in ancient Israel. And as he goes to that place, he lays the letter of the king of Assyria out on the floor as he is bowing down before his God. Picture the scene, friends. Picture what is happening right there in that moment. As he bows himself low, no words, we get no words out of Hezekiah at this point except to simply lie down on the ground and lay out the problem before God. First, no words yet from his mouth. He doesn't even have a ready answer. Listen, Hezekiah has nothing. There is no chance for Hezekiah to respond out of some resource pool somewhere to deal with this problem. He realizes he is in utter despair. And so there are no words at this point. And number two, he lays the problem in front of the Lord. What is he saying by doing that? He is saying, this is your problem. This is yours. You take it. I'm done with trying to figure this thing out and strategize and put together all of this stuff. This is your problem. I have no answer, but I'm trusting that you can take care of this. And then he prays in verse 17. Let's pick up and read at verse 17 through 20. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for... They were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now, there are three things that I want us to see in that prayer that I think are immediately applicable to whatever your situation of desperation is right now or in the future. Three things. Number one, Hezekiah compares the true and living God to the, I'm sorry, uh, that was number two. Number one, Hezekiah cares about the honor of God. He cares deeply about God being honored and is offended when God is offended. Hezekiah's concern is not first for his safety. Do you notice that in the prayer? 
He is a Godward. This is a Godward prayer. This is a prayer that is God-centered at the core of it, where he's not saying, God, you got to help me out here. you got to get me through this situation. He's saying, God, your glory is at stake. Your glory is at stake, and I want to pray to you about that. That's what my concern is more than anything else. The king of Assyria is mocking God. But the response that Hezekiah has to being offended at the glory of God, we need to understand what that means for a Christian to be offended for the glory of God, especially in comparison to extremist Islam today, because, because, if in extremist Islam, if you, if you speak against Muhammad or you speak against Allah, there will be uh, jihadis, jihadists who will come after you for doing that thing. They will, they will seek harm to you for what you have done against their God. Now, let me suggest why that might be. Because it's not just true for Islam, it's true for any other religion. Because those gods are not gods. They are not the true God. And so to be offended and say, we have to do something, yes, of course you have to do something because your God cannot. Do you understand? Every other God, when it gets mocked, is not a God. But what Hezekiah does is he doesn't say, I'm going to go get those guys, man. I am going to take them out. He says, God, God, do you hear what they're saying? You take care of this. I'm not. This is Romans 12, by the way. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. And what does Paul say? Therefore, don't take vengeance. Because we have a God who takes vengeance. But Hezekiah simply tells God about it. He doesn't need to take up arms. He will simply leave the vengeance to his God. But he will call upon God to act, as we're going to see in point number three. Point number two is this about that prayer. Hezekiah compares the true and living God to the false gods of the other nations. Hezekiah remembers that God is not some piece of stone or wood. He lives. He is the true God. Christians, can I be so bold as to remind you that our God reigns. That our God is the true and living God. And here's the follow-up to that. Ready? Live like he is the true and living God. Because... If we are honest, there are times where we live like he is like the other gods and doesn't exist at all. We've got to take care of our, our, ourselves, right? We've got to get ourselves together. We've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Got to make enough money to make sure we got everything in place. Not that any of that is a bad thing, but be careful how you live. Are you demonstrating to the world that God is true and real? Are you taking chances? Are you taking risks knowing that that is what God has called you to do? Or are we playing it safe? Because if we play it safe, it may look to others 
Like what we're saying is that I say I believe that God reigns, but, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hold back because I'm really not that sure. And I want to suggest to you that the world looks at Christians and they go, is this God real or not? I, I can't see him. He doesn't seem to be revealing himself in the heavens physically. So I'm going to look at these Christians. How are they living? Members of Echo Church, hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable to living like God is the true and living God. Hold yourself accountable to take risks. Hold yourself accountable to be willing to use your time, your resources, your finances for the glory of God because he is true and he is real and he will supply all of your needs. For Hezekiah, the reason those other gods couldn't save their people is because they were not real. But Hezekiah's God is real. Number three, finally, Hezekiah calls on God to act in such a way that his glory is displayed to the whole world. Let's read that verse again. Chapter 37, verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand. Now notice the word here, that. You see that? There's a purpose for why we're asking you to save us. That word, that, is a purpose word. Here's the reason, God, that you would save us like this. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Don't save us because we, we just want you to be kind to us. We're calling upon your kindness right now. We just want you to be the merciful God that we know you are. No. For your glory, God, save us that the rest of the nations would tremble and perhaps some of those Gentiles would come in and seek you. And when you pray like that, you are praying something that will always be answered. Do you know why? Because that is what God does with every action he takes. Now, it's a little bit weird for me to talk about God acting. But when God acts, however we, however we can conceive of that, he is always acting with one end in mind, with one, with one purpose, and that is to display the glory of himself to the universe. And so when you pray, God, display the glory of yourself to the universe, you are praying something exactly in line with what God is doing. So when Hezekiah prays that to God, he is saying, act in line with who you are, God. Do this so your glory will be magnified to the nations around. Chapter 5, the God of the universe accepts Assyria's challenge. Assyria has been mocking and claiming that God could never save his people. Hezekiah prayed and asked the Lord to intervene for the sake of God's glory. And God acted. Let's read Isaiah 37, verse 26. 
Here's what God first says to the king of Assyria. Believe it or not, God speaks through Isaiah to the king of Assyria. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. So let's stop there. What's God saying first? What's the first thing that God is saying? Let me tell you something, Assyria. Let me tell you something, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Everything you have done up to this point is because I planned it. Everything. I formed you. I made you who you are. And I ensured that the nations up to this point that you have destroyed would in fact be destroyed. And by the way, that's why we have the last 24 chapters. Because we already know that's what God is doing in those 24 chapters. Essentially, God says, I made you. And because he did, he made him in creation and he made him the king. God also tells him that just as he had power to do what he wanted with him in the past, he has the power to continue to do what he wants with the king of Assyria in the future. God says to the king, the king of the greatest nation on earth at the time, essentially, here is what you're going to do. And you will have no power to stop it. Because, verse 29, you have raged against me. And your complacency, I love that, that's an interesting word, requires more study, don't have time to talk about it right now. And your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose. By the way, that's something the Assyrians loved to do. When they, dra when they dragged captives away, they would take hooks and they would run them through their noses and then tie the cord to each other. God says, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and I'm going to put my bit for a horse in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. God tells him, I'm going to make you go home and there's nothing you can do about it. Then God speaks to Hezekiah about the king of Assyria. So now God is talking to Hezekiah, and here's what he says to Hezekiah. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same, he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Notice that that's exactly the way Hezekiah prayed. God, for your sake, do it. God says, for my sake, I will do it. And then Isaiah tells us in narrative form what God does. Let's pick up in verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. 
And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. God sent one of his angels. We call him the Lord of hosts. Do you know what that means? The Lord of the armies of the angels. Here is one angel. I don't know if this angel was acting at the max of his power or if he was just flicking his finger, but one angel seemed to be able to kill 185,000 troops. And God turned the king to go back to his land, by the way, to die the most humiliating death, to have your sons rise up and kill you. Just take that in for a minute. I know it's dark. I know it's violent. But consider our God for a minute. Consider the mockery. And consider the fact that Hezekiah was in the most desperate situation of his life. What miracle, what miracle would God bring out of the desperation of our lives. I was in a conversation this week with someone that will not be named, but the situation that they described to me was one of those situations that you just go, that there is no human solution for the pain and the devastation that's going on in you and in your family right now. There's, there's, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing a pastor can say. There's no consolable words. And there's no patting on the back and saying, it'll be okay. But I was reminded this week of this text. And just as there was no answer in my mind for their situation, there is no answer in Hezekiah's mind for his situation. But what we are taught in Scripture is that it's in those moments of desperation that God wants to act so that you and I will not ever think that we brought about the solution by ourselves. That we somehow had a, had a hand in this whole thing. Do you remember God's people when they came out of Egypt and God was marching them by the pillar of fire? By the way, miraculous pillar of fire that's leading them through where they're supposed to go in the desert. And do you remember where the pillar of fire goes first? straight into the Dead Sea where the waters are right there and you've got these million or so people that are sitting there encamped against the Dead Sea and then Pharaoh comes and he completely gathers his army and surrounds them. He's like, I got them. Here's the reminder. The pillar of fire led them to that impossible situation so that God could work and show that it is by nothing of their own hand that they got free from the Egyptians. Some of you may be in desperate situations. And I wonder if you're like Hezekiah in his first response. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's, let's call a few people together. Why don't you pray for me? Why don't you pray? Or I wonder if you're like Hezekiah in his second response. 
where he has no words, falls down on the ground, and simply lays the problem before God. I got nothing. And I would encourage you, if you're in that first category, pray, pray. And God may answer this in a, in a hard way, that God would bring you to total and complete desperation because that's what he wants for his people, that we would be dependent upon him. And he will bring things into our lives where there is no answer except to call upon him. I know I've gone long. I'd like to end with the psalm. I'd like us to just meditate. This, this is a little different than what I ask you to do normally in a sermon, but I'm going to put the words of a psalm up there. And this is not to, to turn your brains on and try to figure out everything that's going on here, but I want you to realize that many commentators believe that this psalm was written that morning when the people of God came out of Jerusalem to find 185,000 troops dead from the Assyrian army and the rest of the troops had gone home. So worship with me as I read Psalm 46, verses 6 through 11. The psalmist says this, the nations rage the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And friends, what was true for Old Testament Israel is true for you today if you're in Christ. The God of Jacob is your fortress. Every promise that God made to his people, it finds its yes and it's amen in Christ. So let's pray, and then let's celebrate that we are in Christ by taking communion together in just a minute. Father, you are so great. Your power is beyond what we could ever imagine. We watch in this story as a human being tries to mock you and calls you and taunts you to action. And we see in this story as a man, another human being, falls down on his face before you and lays the problem in front of you and says, God, do something about this. And you act.
and you did it. And God, may we know as we walk out from these doors in a few moments that you are the God who lives and who reigns and who acts. May we know it and may we believe and may we live differently because you are the true and living God and not a God of wood and stone. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute, may we know that you are for us. That you, shed, you sent your son to shed his blood and break his body for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.